Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. To John chapter 5, and as these high school graduates were standing up here on the stage, my son being one of them, they were all in second grade when we first came to the church. And we got to see them go through Mini Mount Adventure and youth camp and the, the different musicals and choir specials. And now we're launching them out into the world. And so it's amazing to see little Kayla Carey and little Wyatt Hill and little Aiden and the little twins, Alex and T- all these little Chris, all you guys growing up. And now you're big people, which is good. John chapter 5. When I mentioned the name Benedict Arnold, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Traitor, right? During the Revolutionary War against England, he was a general in George Washington's army. He was the commander of West Point in New York. And George Washington gave him West Point as a strategic stronghold in the fight against the British. And Benedict Arnold had to sign what is called the Oath of Loyalty. The Oath of Loyalty that he signed was that he would pledge allegiance to his country. And as he began to think that the British were probably going to win the war, he began some secret negotiations with the British spy named Major John Andre. He was the head of British secret intelligence. And they corresponded back and forth in some coded messages. And really for Benedict Arnold, it was more about the money than anything else. He agreed to give up West Point for 20,000 pounds, which was a lot of money back then. Well, the plot was exposed and they captured John Andre carrying the secret plans And Benedict Arnold learned about the capture, and he hightailed it out of there down the Hudson River on a British warship called the Vulture to avoid being captured by George Washington. The name Benedict Arnold is equated with treason, high treason, a traitor, a turncoat, one that would strategically plan to go against his country. And it's interesting that he felt tremendous remorse on his deathbed. He said these words on his deathbed, let me die in this old uniform in which I fought my battles. May God forgive me for ever having put on another. Benedict Arnold is a man who did not honor his country. He did not honor his oath. He did not honor his position. He did not honor his general, George Washington. If there was ever a man in American history that we would think this is a man of dishonor, it would be Benedict Arnold. Now, when you think of the word honor, honor, what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you think of the word honor? To respect, to revere, to esteem, to admire. But let me ask you a more personal question this morning. How do you honor God? 
How do you truly honor God? When was the last time you thought about honoring God with your life? Here's the answer from our text this morning in John chapter 5. Because it deals a lot with honor and honoring God. Here's the answer. You honor God by believing that Jesus has authority to give life and to bring judgment. That Jesus has the authority to give life and to bring judgment. Now, this is a long chapter, chapter 5. It's really divided into three main scenes, but for this morning, we're just going to focus on the first two. And so here's scene one, verses 1 through 18. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. So let's read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is a brand new section in the Gospel of John. As we remember last week, the Cana cycle has come to an end. This is now a new section called the Festival Cycle. And all the way through chapter 10, so chapter 5 through chapter 10, a new section, Jesus is going to go to these Jewish festivals, and there's going to be some issues surrounding um, his uh, attendance at these festivals. And so he's back in Jerusalem, and he's there at Bethesda, And there's this lame man who's been lame for 38 years, which is very interesting because the average lifespan of of people back in that age and that day was about 40 years. So he lived longer than the average lifespan, 38 years with a disability. Now, some of you are probably wondering, if you read carefully, why did Pastor Sean skip over verse 4? Because the ESV... And the NIV do not have verse 4. 
If you have a King James Version, and surprisingly the New American Standard, you have a verse 4. Why in the world do some translations not have a verse 4? Well, I'm not going to bore you with all the minutia. But let me just tell you this. There have been some top scholars, and almost all of the commentaries will tell you that in doing research and looking at the oldest manuscripts that we have available of the Gospel of John, verse 4 is not in those earliest manuscripts. Also, they make the argument that many words that appear in verse 4 do not show up anywhere else in the writings of John. And so based upon scholarly research, based upon archaeology, based upon looking at the ancient texts, most scholars have basically come to the conclusion that a scribe later on down the road added verse 4 in there to give explanation as to the superstition of the Jews who believed that an angel came down and stirred the waters. Now you can go do more reading on that if you want to go read a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, second edition, those of you that want to read that. Probably none of you will, so take my word for it. I've read that footnote in Bruce Metzger's um, Greek commentary about that, and so most of the ancient manuscripts do not have that. Now, he's at Bethesda, which means house of mercy, which is interesting because a place of mercy, this, this, this invalid who's been there um, trying to get in has been pushed aside, has been pushed aside, has been pushed aside. He's not getting mercy. And it almost seems a bit comical, because what does Jesus say to the man? In verse 6, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Well, duh, Jesus. I've been this way for 38 years, and I've been pushed to the side. He's probably a bitter, frustrated, lonely old man who definitely wants to be healed. And so it's interesting that Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Yes, obviously, he wants to be healed. And so Jesus simply says to him, In verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. The power of Christ's word. An instantaneous healing. But I want you to notice something interesting about this man. Not once does he ever thank Jesus, and not once does he ever confess faith in Jesus. He simply healed Jesus. And goes on his way. And as you find out later on, he actually blames Jesus. But the issue here is not necessarily that Jesus had miraculous power to heal a man who had been disabled for 38 years. The bombshell is there in verse 9b. Now that day was the Sabbath. That's the real issue. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And that man broke the Sabbath. Now, what's the big deal about healing a man on a Sabbath? What's the big deal about a guy picking up his mat and walking home on the Sabbath? Now, there was no specific Old Testament law that prevented you from picking up your mat and walking home with your mat, but the Pharisees of that day made up about 39 man-made religions to help you understand the Sabbath. And the 39th legalistic man-made religion was if you, that you could not pick up something and carry it from one place to another on the Sabbath. So, so technically, according to the man-made legalistic religion of the Pharisees, this man broke the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders questioned him. and said, who, who, who told you to do this? Why are you doing this? And in verse 11, he, he blames Jesus 
The man who healed me, he's the one that told me to do this. And then later on, Jesus finds him at the temple. And he says something very interesting to him. Verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more. Now, we really don't know what caused this man to become disabled for 38 years. Many scholars believe that maybe he had a sin pattern in his life that led him to be reckless, and somehow he got disabled because of some sin. We really don't know. But what Jesus tells him here is that, listen, you think being disabled for 38 years is a bad thing? If you keep sinning, there's something worse. Now, we don't have to fill in the gaps to understand what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is really saying here is, listen, if you keep sinning, you're going to physically die, and you're going to end up separated from God. So do not keep sinning. Sinning, And so Jesus addresses the sin issue in this man's life, which caught the attention of these Jewish leaders. Who has authority to tell this man about his sin? Who has authority to break the Sabbath? And so these Jewish leaders lay two, claim, or two um, charges at the feet of Jesus. Here's charge number one. They say to Jesus, you are guilty of breaking the Sabbath. You are breaking the Sabbath. Look at verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now notice Jesus' answer to them. Verse 17. Jesus answered them, you're breaking the Sabbath, Jesus. How dare you do this? Listen to his answer. You've got to love it. My father's working until now, and I'm working. That's, that's an interesting answer. What's, what's Jesus saying there? He's saying this, God worked six days in creating the universe and rested on the seventh. Now, was it because God was tired? No, it was an example for us to follow. But who keeps the universe running? God. Who keeps working to make sure that gravity and that we don't fly off the planet? Who's continually working to this day to make sure that the universe is sustained? The Father. The Father is always working. And what does Jesus say? I am working. In other words, what's Jesus saying there is, listen, the universe would cease to exist if I stopped working because I am equal to the Father. I'm the one that's sovereignly keeping this universe going. I'm the one who's sustaining the universe. Now, this is getting the Jewish leader's blood boiling, and this is the second accusation. Now, they're, they're really upset. Not only is this man talking about sin not only is this man breaking the Sabbath, but how dare he say, my father. We as Jews would call God our father, but he's saying my father. My father is working until now, and I'm working. Who gives him the right to be working and being like his father? Then you see the second charge they lay at Jesus' feet. Verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, number one, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself to be, what's the issue there? Equal with God. Sometimes skeptics will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. But right here, as we will see in the rest of this chapter, Jesus gives many reasons and many claims why he is equal to God. 
So this passage is clearly teaching that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus has authority to keep working. Jesus is the one who, the only one who has the authority to be equal with God. So now let's go to scene two, where Jesus actually answers the claim. Says, you guys think I'm equal with God? Great. Let me explain to you in full detail, full theological detail. This is probably the most theologically rich passage in the section of John here that deals with the deity and the divinity and the godhood of of Christ. So here's scene two, Jesus claims to be equal with God. He's going to explain it. This is in verses 19 through 30. Let's continue reading Jesus' explanation as to why and how he explains that he is, in fact, equal with God. He is God in the flesh. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Primary issue here is honoring God, honoring Jesus, Jesus claiming to be equal with God. What does it mean to honor? What does it mean to really honor it means to highly prize. It means to value. And so let's just stop. Jesus is not just giving us a theological explanation about who he is so that we can have a theology lesson. He's doing this so that we will honor him. We will glorify him. We will treasure him. We will esteem him. We will fear him. We will serve him. We will ultimately find our ultimate satisfaction and bow to Jesus. That's why he's doing this. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship teaching the doctrines, the commandments of men. Would we be a people whose lips honor Jesus and whose hearts also honor him as well? And so Jesus is going to give three reasons here. Why he's equal with God, 
why he has authority to heal on the Sabbath, why he can do what he can do. And, the, and Jesus lays the gauntlet down here. He, he's, he's claiming things that only God himself can do, Jesus is saying. So here's the three things. Here's number one, the first claim, the first reason that Jesus gives as to why he is equal with God and why we should honor him. Reason number one, Jesus does the works of the Father. Now, in verses 19 and through, through verse 20, Jesus says, truly, truly. It's a, it's a way of getting your attention. Truly, truly, I tell you the truth. This is important to listen to. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does. So, so Jesus does not work independently of the Father. He works in harmony with the Father. Why? Because he's equal with the Father. He is fully God in the flesh. And Jesus does what the Father does. And so in his time on earth, when Jesus is doing his ministry, when he comes in the flesh, he's doing exactly what God the Father has given him to accomplish. He's doing the works of the Father. And this is this love relationship between the Father and the Son. Look at verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all these things he himself is doing. Only Someone who's equal with God can claim these types of things. The Father loves me with a special love that he loves nobody else with. He's my Father. I'm doing his works. Jesus is saying I'm equal to God because I'm doing the works of the Father. Now, what's the implication of this? Well, look at verse 20 at the very end. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may do what? What does it say there at the end of verse 20? You may, my translation says marvel. Marvel. What does it mean to be marvel? What does it mean to marvel? It means to be astonished. It means to be overwhelmed. And the the word in the Greek really lends itself to this visceral feeling of almost angst in the sense that you are overcome with intense emotion at who Christ is, that you would marvel at his work in your life. It's not a casual attitude towards Jesus. It's this deep-felt gut level, my goodness, I am in awe. I'm marveling at his work. So here's a question for you. It's a very important question. How is Jesus at work in your life? Do you see evidences of his work in your life? How's he working in your life? That's a good question to go home after this sermon and ask yourself, how is God working in my life? How is Jesus at work? How is he at work in my family? How is he at work in my life? How is Jesus at work? Because he says, I'm always working. And I'm doing the works of the Father so that you may marvel. How is Jesus' working in your life causing you to honor and marvel and worship him? Something for you to think about. I can't answer it for you. I don't know your life, but you need to think about this. And maybe ask people around you, do you how do you see God working in my life? How is Jesus working? And is it leading me to worship him? Is it leading me to marvel in him because he's at work and in my life? How's he at work in your life? Ask that question. It's a very important question. How is Christ at work? So that's reason number one. Jesus says, listen, I'm doing the works of my Father. I'm at work, and it's going to lead you to marvel. How is Jesus at work in your life? Reason number two. Jesus gives spiritual life to sinners. 
Look at verse 21. You see the absolute sovereign authority of Jesus in verse 21. What does he say? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. It's the Son's divine prerogative to give spiritual life. Now, to these Jews, only the Old Testament God could give life, could could raise the dead, only had that authority. You go back to, to Deuteronomy 32, 39. God of the Old Testament says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there's no God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. I'm the one who gives life, God's saying. Ezekiel 37, 30, 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. So, so only in their mind, God the Father of the Old Testament had the power to raise to life. And Jesus is saying, listen, I have the sovereign right to grant you spiritual life. So here's the point. If you're going to be saved, it's because Jesus is going to make you saved. He's going to grant you life. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour's coming and is now here when the dead, think about this, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's a perplexing question. How can dead people hear? How can a dead person hear? It says dead people will hear. Every single one of us is spiritually dead, but when Christ calls you, When Christ effectually calls you to salvation, when Christ gives you life, guess what happens? You as a dead person hear because there's power in the call. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the issue. We looked at this last week. We are all spiritually dead without Jesus. We are, we are children of wrath. We're spiritually dead. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We can't save ourselves. If any of us is going to be saved, Christ has to call us, grant us life, open our ears so that we will hear and live. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this. In their case, talking about lost people, unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For any of us to have faith, for any of us to come alive, for any of us to, to be saved, Christ has to sovereignly grant us life. He gives life to whom he will. He's got to call into your dead heart. He's got to take the blinders off your eyes. He's got to reach down and be the one to bring you to life. If it's going to happen, only Jesus has the power to grant spiritual life. You can't grant it to yourself because you're dead. You can't hear because you're deaf. You can't see because you're blind. Only God can do that. John 6, 63 Jesus talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, us, people, is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Romans 9.15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now we have an example of this in the book of Acts where Lydia, 
In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Paul goes down by the river and he sees these women worshiping. Now, they, when it says they were worshipers of God, it doesn't mean they were saved. They were just Jewish proselytes. They were checking out the Jewish religion. Acts 16, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And, and then she gets baptized, she and her family. The Lord opened her heart. The Spirit grants life. The Son gives life to whom He will. Only Jesus has the sovereign right to grant life. So if there's any of us here that are going to be saved, it's because God, in His sovereignty, has given that role to Jesus to grant us spiritual life. And when He calls, the call is effectual in the sense that it creates the faith. It creates the response that is needed to come because his call is powerful. Now, what should that do in your life? That should not lead to any boasting whatsoever. It actually should lead you to worship, to honor, to prize, to love Jesus, to get on your your knees and say, Jesus, I was dead. I was in the grave. I was in the slime. I was in the scum. I was in the sewer of sin, and you pulled me out. You granted me life. You rescued me. I can't boast. Only you. And praise the Lord that you rescued me. It should lead us to worship, to marvel, to honor Jesus. So not only is Jesus powerfully working in your life, he's at work. And not only does Jesus grant you spiritual life, all with the the, the aim of worshiping him, but here's the third reason. Jesus gets very specific and very future-oriented. Reason number three, Jesus brings judgment to all people. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. Go down to verse 27. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Now again, only, only the, the Jews thought only in their mind of the Old Testament God. Only God the Father in the Old Testament had the authority to judge. That's, that's been not given to anybody else. Genesis 18.25, Shall not all, the judge of all the earth do what is just? So Jesus is making a bold claim here. Yes, I'm equal with God. I'm so equal with God that I'm doing the works of God. I'm so equal with God that I'm granting life the way God does. And I'm so equal with God, I'm given the authority to judge the living and the dead. Now, verse 24 is the most important verse in this passage of Scripture. Let's read verse 24 very carefully. What does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, what do you have? Has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. How do you know you have eternal life? How do you know you've passed from from death to life? What does Jesus say? You've heard his words. And you believe him. Every week we're seeing the same thing, aren't we? It's getting kind of old, isn't it? No. We are to believe in Jesus. We're to place our faith in Jesus. How do you have eternal life? You believe in Jesus. You place your faith in Jesus. He keeps telling us over and over again, this is the way that you have eternal life. But what's the flip side of that? What happens if you don't believe in Jesus? 
What happens if you don't place your faith in Jesus? Well, the exact opposite is true. You are coming into judgment. You don't pass from death to life. You are still in death. There's a final day of judgment coming. And Jesus says here, I will act as the sovereign judge on that final day. Look at verse 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will do what? Hear his voice. And what will happen when he calls? Verse 29. They will come out. Coming out of tombs. This is the resurrection of the dead. This is the final resurrection. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is a final resurrection of the dead to judgment. And Jesus has given sovereign authority to be the judge. It's what Paul says in Acts 17 when he's preaching at Mars Hill to these people. He says this in Acts 17, 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why are we to repent? Because he's fixed a day. What's that day? A day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Who's going to judge? By a man whom he's appointed. How do we know who this man is? He's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Every single person who has died at the coming of Christ will be resurrected from their graves to face the living judge. Some to eternal righteousness, to life, as Jesus says here, some to eternal judgment. And how does it hinge? It hinges on your belief in Jesus. This is a direct prophecy that came true in Daniel 12, verse 2. In Daniel 12, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus is just quoting what Daniel talked about. But you know how the Bible ends, right? Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who's that? That's Jesus because he's given the authority to judge. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's just another way of Jesus here saying, you will rise to judgment. So the question you've got to ask is, are you ready for that final day? Is verse 24 true for you? What does verse 24 say? Is it true for you? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Have you believed in Jesus Christ so that you know you have eternal life? Have you passed from life or from death to life? So how do you honor God? How do you prize? How do you marvel? How do you worship? How do you, how do you come to that point of, 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 of just this deep felt passionate love and worship and glory of God? You believe Jesus has the authority to grant you life and he has the authority to bring judgment. 
two realities that every single person needs to think about. Number one, have you been made spiritually alive? Have, has the Son granted you spiritual life? And number two, if so, what's going to be your fate on that day of judgment? You know, there's no middle ground with Jesus. It's either you've passed from death to life. You're lost, you're saved. It's righteous or it's judgment. There's no middle ground. Do you believe in Jesus? If that's happened to you, if you're here today and you know that God has saved you, that God has taken you from your spiritual death to spiritual life, if you've believed in Jesus and he's rescued you, and you know that on the day of judgment you won't have to face hell because Christ has paid for your sins, if that's true for you today, then your only response is not to boast and not to get all excited about what you've done, but to fall on your face and worship him, to marvel, to honor, to yield. But if not... If you haven't done those things, if you haven't heard the word of the Lord, if you haven't believed in Jesus, if you haven't been granted spiritual life, if you haven't passed from from death to life, then you need to honor the Son today. If you would, I would ask you to turn to Psalm 2 for just a moment. Psalm 2 is a direct prophecy about Jesus. It's what we call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of the Messiah. It's a futuristic prophetic psalm about who Jesus is, what Jesus will be, how Jesus will operate. And there's a dire warning in Psalm 2 that I think pertains to Jesus' words. I'm I'm wondering if Jesus was was telling these words about the authority to judge if he had Psalm 2 ringing in his ears because he knew that the psalmist was writing about him. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's the anointed? Jesus, the Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jesus, the king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. You're the son of man. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is the only begotten son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus has the power to judge. Right there it says it. He will make the nations his heritage. He will come and judge. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And look at the imagery of verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Now, what does that mean? It means you bow to Jesus. It means you honor 
Jesus. It means you revere, you esteem, you marvel, you believe, you submit yourself to Jesus. Why? He's the only one that has the right to give you life. He's the only one that has the right to judge you. If you do not honor him, if you do not kiss him, if you do not bow to him, what is your fate? It says right there, lest he be angry and you perish. You you be raised to everlasting destruction. But notice the promise. Notice the promise. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How do you truly honor God? You take refuge in his son. You find safety in the son. You kiss the son. You worship Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You surrender to him. You find satisfaction. You honor. You marvel. You worship. And when you do that, when you find, when you find refuge in the son, what does Jesus say? Look at verse 24 again in John. You will pass from death to life and you will have eternal life and not have to face judgment. That's the greatest blessing in the world to know that you have eternal life, that Christ has forgiven you of the sins and that one day when he comes back, on that day when you're raised, whether you're alive and caught up in the air or whether you're in the grave, either way, are you ready to meet the Son? Because you've bowed to the Son and you've honored the Son. You've heard His Word and you believed in Him. Here's the accountability today. Nobody can walk out of this place and say, I didn't know this. Nobody told me this. If you've heard the Word, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear. Are you hearing the Word of the Lord this morning? Let me ask you to bow your heads. And only you know that question. Have you passed from death to life? Only you know if you've truly believed in Jesus. And if you have not, would you do it today? Would you honor the Son by believing in Him? And if you've already done that, would you just be in awe that He saved you? And spend some time marveling, excitedly worshiping him in these quiet moments that we have together as you go before Jesus. No doubt in our minds because the word tells us that you are the king. You are the anointed one that's been installed on God's holy hill by virtue of your death, burial, and resurrection. You have risen from the grave and you are seated at the right hand of the majesty on high as God ruling and reigning, ready to come back at the appointed time to judge the living and the dead. Would it be true for everybody in this room this morning that we've all heard the word of the Lord and we've believed in Jesus so that we've passed from death to life. Jesus, would you grant life to those that are dead this morning? Would you cause those who are spiritually separated and dead to be made alive, to be born again, 
The Spirit gives life. The flesh is of no avail. Help us to honor you this week with our lives, with our lips, with our actions. Help us to marvel at the amazing grace that you've given us. Help us to keep this in mind, Lord, that there is a day of judgment. We don't like to think about it, but there is a day of judgment coming. And Jesus, you have the sovereign authority to judge. You are the judge of the living and the dead. That's why all men everywhere must repent. Help us live in the, in the reality of that this week as we honor you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I will be here after the